Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Uh, today, I have a returning guest, James DeGregory. He's the Courtney C. and Lucy Patton Davis Endowed Chair in Lung Cancer Research. He's part of the Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Genetics. All of this at University of Colorado, Anschutz Medical Campus. And we're going to talk about uh, topics related to the cancer book that I'm putting together. So, James, thanks for coming back. It's my pleasure. Yeah. Well, first question, do you believe that cancer is, um, well, it is alive, of course, but is it its own separate organism? And if so, at what point would that happen when there's, quote unquote, enough cells or when there's metastases? Like, you know, again, do you see cancer as a, a separate organism with its own you know, homeostatic drive and, and other attributes? I would say in, you know, 99.999% of the time, it's not its own separate organism because it dies with its host, right? So it's it's terminal for itself as well. But, you know, there are the rare exceptions like the Tasmanian devil cancer, facial tumor. There's the these uh, venereal tumors in dogs and there's these leukemias in clams. And in those cases, those cancers actually spread from individual to individual, and for example, in Tasmania, there are only two, you know, original cancers that are almost eliminating the Tasmanian devil population. Although the latest news is the Tasmanian devils are starting to become resistant and actually the population may, may survive it. But for example, with the dog cancer, that original venereal dog tumor originated in some dog more than 10,000 years ago. And that single one transforming event is now spread throughout the globe on just many, many thousands of dogs. So there are cases where cancer can essentially become its own organism, but it's the exception. They're very rare exception, not the rule. So I'd say in most cases, the cancer is still dependent on the, the host. I, you know, even when we take cancer cells out, we have to completely baby them in culture to keep them alive. They need, you know, all the sort of love and care and growth factors that 
they would normally be getting, you know, inside the individual. So they're certainly not independent entities. They're still very much dependent on the host, when in the host. What about like viral cause cancers? I mean, like HPV and, you know, things like that. I mean, HPV, it seems like can be transmitted through sexual intercourse. So, I mean, I guess you're transmitting the virus, not the cancer itself, but it's in a way contagious by proxy. It's no, and in that case, so you're, you have it exactly right. It's the, the virus is the, the causative agent, agent for the tumor. But we also keep in mind that, you know, I don't know the exact number, but it's well under 1% of people that get HPV that actually get a, a cancer. So HPV infection far outpaces the actual incidence of the cancer. And so I wouldn't say the cancer is its really own entity. And it's really, you know, uh, in some ways, a minor rare side effect of having HPV infection. In fact, there's no evidence the HPV virus actually benefits from these tumors whatsoever. So it's sort of like an unfortunate side effect of having been infected with the virus. And there are other cases where it's not even agent associated is not even integrating itself into the tumor. It's just the inflammation caused by the agent, like H. pylori and stomach cancers that, you know, where it's associated with H. pylori infection. Oh yeah. But it's not, it's not like the H. pylori is itself transforming the cells. It's just creating an environment that's conducive to the stomach cancers arising. Mm, Okay. What's your theory on how cancers first arise? Do you think it's the random mutation model or are there other models that you're considering? I've been pretty vocal against the random mutation model. And, you know, I, what I don't want someone to get the impression of is that I don't think mutations are important. So, you know, it's just like in, you know, evolutionary biology mutations. And of course, you know, epigenetic changes, which are changes to our DNA and the organization of our DNA that are transmitted from generation to generation of cells. Those are important in that they provide variability within a cellular population. So, you know, with variability, you can then get selection for a new phenotype that is adaptive, let's say, when there's a new environment. But the idea that I've been really pushing is what causes cancers to development isn't just the mutations. Mutations happen all the time in our bodies. We are absolutely loaded with mutations, including mutations that would be considered cancer-causing. But it's, it's when our tissue environments change to favor those mutant cells. That's really what is the limiting factor for, for cancer development. So, for example, if we think about smoking, Cigarette smoking does indeed increase the frequency of mutations in the lungs. And of course, that is important for contributing to that increased cancer risk. But I think more importantly, what it does is it just completely changes the environment within the lungs. You know, we've all seen the, you know, the, the lungs in a jar that our teachers showed us to scare us away from smoking that were just, you know, these horrible blackened lungs. And that environment is no longer conducive for the sort of the healthy, normal lung cell type, but it becomes uh, an environment that is, be, can be favorable for cells with cancer-causing mutations. So the basic model is, is that environmental change drives evolution. And if I would just say to that to an evolutionary biologist, they would go, well, of course, we already knew that environmental change drives evolution. It's just the cancer biologists have been sort of behind the eight ball in terms of understanding that that's really a driver for, for cancer evolution. So do you think that, uh, you know, some cells in a given tissue are exposed to, you know, compounds or situations where they have to adapt, 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 and at some point they they can't and they maladapt and then they become cancerous? Like, how do you think it first arises? Yeah, no, I, I think that's that's not a bad way of looking at our cells. When, when they're in a damaged environment, they do try to adapt. And, and not all of that adaptation is going to lead to a cancer. In fact, probably the vast majority of the times it won't. Some of those adaptations will 
you know, even be using mutations that don't even contribute to cancers. So adaptation isn't necessarily directed towards cancers, but it can be. It's essentially increasing the odds that one of those cells is going to take that sort of malignant path. And, you know, I think we also have to keep in mind, yes, uh, there are a lot of agents out there that contribute to us getting cancer, you know, air pollution, smoking, alcohol, uh, virus infections, as we already talked about. But, you know, the, the number one factor that's associated with whether we get cancer is our age. You know, a, a smoker who's in their 30s has less of a chance of getting lung cancer than a 60 or 70 year old n- never smoker. And that's just because the, the most dramatic association with even lung cancers is, is being older. And of course, if you're older and you've been smoking now, well, you have about a 20 fold increased risk of getting cancer relative to an older person who didn't smoke. But still, cancer risk goes up as we get old. And that's because aging is associated with changes in our tissue, essentially the decline of our tissues. What, what is some of the earliest stage biopsies that have ever been done that you know of? And was heterogeneity in these like tiny tumors observed even in the early stage? Oh, yeah. Fact, data actually, yeah, there's tons of data out there. The last 10 years, because of this, you know, the new sequencing technology, there's just been an explosion of data where showing that our normal, apparently healthy tissues are just loaded with mutations. And they're loaded with all these little mini clones. So expansions of cells, so cells essentially undergoing this adaptation that I talked about. And there is evidence that this is even more pronounced when someone, for example, is a smoker. But even a, you know, a never smoker will have some of this. Or, you know, and this happens in, for example, the esophagus of everybody. All of us are getting these expansions. There's a different flavor to this expansions if you are a smoker or a drinker, which is, of course, associated with increased esophageal cancer risk. So, you know, this clonal evolution is happening in all of our tissues, and we can detect it quite nicely. But the sort of the direction of that evolution is very much influenced, not just by your age, but also by, you know, so your your lifestyle choices. And so, yeah, the data, the data is striking. And there's even, you know, evidence of in our normal tissues as we get older, that most of us, for example, will die with little thyroid carcinomas. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Pretty advanced little you know, I wouldn't call them cancers because they haven't spread, but little malignancies that have, you know, quite a few of the genetic events associated with thyroid cancer. And yet thyroid cancer happens in less than 1% of us, if I'm remembering correctly. It's a very small fraction of us. And yet we all have like many tumors in our thyroid if we're over 50. And, you know, we, you know, if you die in a car crash and they do an autopsy, they'll find it. It was unlikely to do anything bad for you whatsoever. So we're kind of little factories for pre-cancers, but fortunately, we've evolved mechanisms that are very good at keeping those pre-cancers from ever developing developing into full-blown cancers. This may be crazy, but what if um, for all tissue types, there's a deliberate 
you know, karyotype rearrangement that allows the tissue to be more successful in adapting the change. And some of that, you know, some of those cells are just by nature what we'd call cancerous, but they're, they're kept in check, but they're actually yeah. useful. Maybe they're a, uh, a weird form of stem cell for a given tissue. Yeah, it's funny. You're right on. I mean, actually, I've written about this. I've even called them decoy fitness peaks. So, you know, I used to be a believer that all somatic evolution, you know, except for the making of B and T cells and the immune repertoire, but, uh, you know, the sort of the random somatic evolution that happens in our tissue, I thought, you know, this is all bad. There's no good that can come of this. And I, I think I was just wrong. I think there's quite a bit of somatic evolution happening in our tissues that actually could be useful. Either it's useful because it actually helps restore tissue function in a context of damage, for example. And I think there's some evidence from, I think, the liver that shows some of that. But even more interesting is that some of the somatic evolution may create clones that are more benign and they're less likely to become malignant, but they actually are competitive in that they outcompete the more malignant ones. And, and so I think it raises an interesting possibility that we should be thinking about in terms of cancer prevention is how do we you know, support the more benign clones, even if they're not as good as, as young clones, young healthy clones would be, while you know, in order to provide better competition to the more nasty ones. And the analogy I like to use is sort of the strategy we used in Syria. And maybe it's not a good analogy because our strategy has failed pretty miserably there. But, you know, we ended up supporting rebel groups in Syria. And the the rebel groups we were supporting weren't exactly angels. You know, they weren't all good, but we just saw them as much less bad than ISIS. And so we supported them. And the idea being is that they would sort of keep ISIS in check. So chemotherapy used seems to bring out the the nastier variants of a given cancer or tumor. So could we tailor chemotherapy so that it goes after the nastier variants? And again, like you said, preferentially allows the, the more benign variants to, to take over. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think that the, you know, what, the way we think about chemotherapy is we think about sort of the traditional chemotherapy drugs, which are, you know, DNA damaging or what we call genotoxic drugs. So I don't think it's going to really work with those types of drugs, but I think we do need to come up with drugs that don't just, in other words, we don't, we don't just want to go after the bad guys, the more malignant parts of the cancer. We want to see if we can actually support the less malignant part. You know, particularly, I think this is a good strategy for someone who's, you know, is in the later part of their life, let's say over 70, because often curing an advanced metastatic cancer is not really in the cards. But maybe keeping that cancer in check for 15, 20 years would allow someone to live out their natural lifespan without really any debilitating effects of the cancer. In other words, you don't try to eradicate the cancer, you just try to control it. And one mechanism of such control would be to sort of favor the more benign aspects of the cancer. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Because it's often not the load of tumor itself that kills it. It's the spreading of that cancer. So, for example, if we could favor less you know, invasive and less metastatic components within the cancer, that might actually be a good strategy. That won't be trivial, but I think we really haven't invested the effort in even trying. Well, we've done a ton of chemo to people, for instance. So if we have biopsies of tumors before and after chemo, we would have seen this transition tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of times. We should be able to characterize the, uh, you know, the karyotype makeup or the phenotype makeup of the more nastier cancers that occur after chemo, let's say, and then we may be able to back it up and 
and again, have different therapies so that we prevent the formation of those real nasty ones and preference the ones that are more benign. Like, you know, for any given cancer, I don't know if there's um, benign tumors, like, you know, for liver cancer, the benign liver tumors, for brain cancer, same thing. So if we look yeah. at the of those benign ones right. and try to steer the tumor in that direction, maybe that would help. No, I think that's a great, great point. And we're, we're actually doing that with acute myeloid leukemia. Because we do have a fair bit of information on what the, the relapsed leukemia, and these are all after chemotherapy, look like and what are their traits. And so we're trying to then, you know, ask, can we then come up with therapies that are still effective that don't select for that type, don't select for that sort of nasty final variant? I think that, you know, you know, the site, you know, and you wrote, raised the question of brain tumors and so that might be a difficult one because even a benign brain tumor can be lethal. So this might depend on the site. You know, for example, in the liver, you may be able to tolerate having, you know, a, a certain size liver tumor if it's non-invasive or, you know, otherwise not causing much harm. But in the brain, any tumor of decent size is going to, it's going to be either lethal or incredibly debilitating. So, so this sort of strategy is probably going to have to be tailored dependent on site. Well, do you, um, when a cancer first starts, do you think it starts from one cell? Or again, if it's, if it is a, you know, a tissue exposed to a stress and there's a maladaptation, and especially if there are always cancer cells and they're actually useful, uh, for a given tissue, perhaps it's a bunch of different cells that, that started cancer, not just one. Yeah. Well, the vast majority of cancers that arise in people are from a single event. Now, of course, there's incredible diversification after that event, but they will, you know, all the cells in the tumor will share at least one, what we call truncal mutation, because it's at the base of the tree. But how That's do we know that, it's just one to start and it's not many? How do well, we know because, that? Because the event will be, you know, unique enough. Let's say the event is a, you know, a specific mutation or a translocation. There, you know, the, the chance of that happening identically in multiple different cells leading to this cancer would be incredibly rare. Not to mention that often when, when that event happens in the cell, there'll be a lot of what we call passenger mutations that were already present in the cell. So that cell is essentially marked as a, you know, these mutations that are at the trunk were all present when that first event happened. So we can be quite confident that the entire cancer arose from a single cell. That said, people that develop one cancer are indeed more likely to develop a second independent one. It's still, you know, the exception, not the rule, fortunately, for those people. But, you know, there is something to be said that, they, you know, that they are, they present an overall tissue environment and even, you know, systemic environment that's more conducive to cancer. And in fact, it, you know, the lungs of someone who has lung cancer, if you were to go to other parts of the lung, and I don't know if the study has been done, but I would bet that there are more sort of of these precancers present within the lungs because basically that person had an environment in their lungs that was more conducive to the development of cancer. So there were probably some early clones that just weren't as far along the path to that cancer. And we only saw the one dominant one that ended up being the winner, but that doesn't mean that there weren't other ones that were kind of in the race. So what's the difference between a um, benign tumor and a malignant one, you know, when you look at them pathologically or you know, under the microscope? Yeah, no, definitely. It's, you know, and I'm not a pathologist, but, you know, there'll be differences in the boundaries. So a more benign tumor will be sort of, uh, you know, often smoother boundaries. It, you know, it, it clearly is separated from the rest of the tissue, uh, while a more invasive cancer would be the, you know, the, the more malignant one would be where you see almost like these fingers outstretching into the rest of the tissue as those cells invade into other parts of it. In fact, that's where the word cancer comes from comes from the Greek for crab. And mm. it's the, 
it's it, you know because too early i think it was even named back in the you know the aristotle times and uh, i don't know exactly when but it was it was a long time ago because the doctors would basically see this you know this strange abnormality in the tissue that was you know almost had like finger like projections crab like projections into the tissue and right. the other thing about a more malignant cancer is that it actually does even worse and then it can enter the bloodstream of the lymph lymph uh, glands of the lymph system and spread to other parts of the body. So for example, it's not the melanoma that you see in someone's skin that kills the person. It's that those melanoma cells spreading to the lungs, the liver, the brain, and the bone. And it's that, it's that metastasized cancer that is going to kill you. So a benign tumor will not do that. But a more advanced, you know, stage three or four cancer will. Do you think that there's a communication and orchestration between a primary tumor and its metastases? It's funny you should mention that. There are, were data a while ago from Judah Folkman that seemed to show just that. In fact, there was some data he had, and I don't know how general this is, where the primary tumor was actually suppressing the outgrowth of the metastases. And, and so they only discovered this when they would remove the primary tumor, the metastases would suddenly uh, sort of develop. I don't know if that was actually the, the primary tumor controlling the metastases or if what that really was is the actual surgery of the primary tumor with all the associated inflammation and damage, if that just created a systemic response that sort of stimulated the outgrowth of the metastases. So the bottom line is, you know, it's not clear how much communication there is normally between the, the sites, but we do know that, for example, there's been cases where when you know, when you irradiate the primary tumor, you can also get shrinkage of the metastatic sites or other tumor sites. But the reason seems to be not so much because of normal communication, but that what you've essentially done is that that radiation is creating an immune response against the tumor. And of course, that was immune response against the primary tumor that you irradiated, but those same immune cells will recognize the metastatic sites and might be able to help clear it as well. So I'm not totally answering your question because that doesn't necessarily indicate some sort of communication, but they're, they're definitely, they're not acting completely independently. Oh, I should also mention one other thing is that there is also evidence that the presence of the primary tumor can lead to what's called metastatic niche remodeling. So where it's, it, it actually will create a context in the metastatic site, even before metastatic cells go there that's more sort of favorable to a metastasis. So it's, you know, uh, they call them like pre-metastatic sites. And I don't think it's, it's clear why that happens because it's not like, you know, we have to keep in mind that the tumor doesn't have agency. The cancer is not thinking, you know, hey, I'd like a nice spot in the liver for my children. It's more that, that something about the primary tumor is creating some sort of change systemically that makes it more likely that metastases will seed in distant organs. Well, I think you've probably read about extracellular vesicles and yeah. from, in from fact, interviews with those people, they say that, you know, tumors uh, kick out tons of extracellular vesicles and they seem to be have different payloads than, than healthy tissue. Yeah. In fact, so there is direct, there's direct evidence of those who can actually help remodel the pre-metastatic sites. But what I don't think is clear is the why, because, you know, the, the, it's not like, natural selection of the tumor is going to favor a tumor that does that because that's not going to necessarily be favorable to the cells in the primary tumor. So I think it's almost got to be a, a side effect. So in other words, it's this, these release of the extracellular, the, these EVs, mm-hmm. the release of these extracellular vesicles is 
somehow also probably benefiting the primary tumor, but it also has the added benefit of creating the added benefit for the cancer, not for the individual, of creating these pre-metastatic sites. I mean, initially, it seems like it would benefit a tumor to be able to spread to more tissues. It gets around more. But yeah. as you said, the end point is, unfortunately, is death. Right. But, uh, at least for a while, it does seem like the tumor and its associated metastases are kind of like an organism. And they're, you know, you know, they're trying to grow and spread and do all the things that organisms do and, you know, and move around and stuff like that and produce more of them. But then at some point, they, they seem to run into a problem, you know. Right. Well, yeah, no, we've we've often philosophically talked about it. Only cancers knew that their own aggressiveness was going to bring about their own end. Right. And, you know, you could kind of draw an analogy with what humans are doing on Earth. You know, we, we, we seem to be poisoning our own planet. And yet we're not cognizant enough of this to do anything about it. And, and the same could be sort of said of tumors as they end up they end up killing their own host, which is, you know, counterproductive. Yeah. But that's getting very philosophical. But, you know, in terms of whether you would select for it, you'd have to sort of ask the question, if there was, you know, one cell that acquired this ability to make extracellular vessels, and this isn't the primary tumor, that, that would make a pre-metastatic niche, what would give that cell an advantage over the other millions of cells in that primary tumor? Why would that cell have an advantage? And, and so even though you can see in the long run that is going to favor the spread of the tumor, the, the immediate question is, what is the competitive advantage to the cell at that moment, you know, in the, in the now? Because, you know, as I forgot which evolutionary biologist said it, evolution has no eyes for the future. It's not really able to go, hey, that would be a good thing for the future if I could make these pre-metastatic niches for, you know, for my offspring. First off, those, those, uh, the cells that end up in those pre-metastatic niches may be very genetically unrelated to that, you know, to the cell that's actually, you know, secreting these vesicles to, help form these pre-metastatic niches. It could be from some other part of the cancer. It's really of a question of, you know, immediate competitive benefit. And so what I think is must be the case is that that property must give some other benefit that's even manifested in the primary tumor that allows that clone to expand to the point where it becomes more dominant within the primary culture, primary tumor. And of course, then there's gonna be more of those cells making that, you know, that niche remodeling stuff. And it's going to increase the chance that you're going to remodel those pre-metastatic niches in other organs. Well, within a given tumor, are all the cells acting individually or are they acting in concert, uh, you know, to help the, uh, you know, whether it's primary metastases, but, you know, there's, there's are they a, acting there's, in concert together? Yeah, there's actually a, a fair bit of data that's shown that cells can interact. In fact, one of the people I suggested to you guys was Andre Marusik, who's at the Moffitt. And when he was a postdoctoral fellow with Cornelia, Cornelia Poliak, who goes by Nellie, Nellie Poliak at the Dana-Farber, they actually did studies to show that, you know, you could have two independent clones that make two different growth factors that alone, they're not that effective at causing cancers, but together they're way more effective and way more competitive, sort of a direct example of, of sort of clonal cooperation. And so it's because each one is essentially making a public good. And, and so you then have to always ask the question, well, why would it favor, you know, if it's making something that's secreted, how would it ever favor the cell that makes it over all the other cells who are essentially sort of just freeloaders, right? They don't have to make it, go through the energy of making it, but they can benefit from it. And it probably has to do with local concentrations because, you know, as cells divide spatially, 
the other cells nearest to that cell are most likely going to be genetically related to that cell. And they're most likely going to be the ones benefiting, at least get the most benefit from any secreted factor. But yes, the short answer is yes, there is evidence for clonal cooperation within a cancer. Although we always have to think that any given cancer cell is not going to truly be altruistic towards other cancer cells. They're still each acting, you know, each of them is is basically uh, subjected to competition that is uh, really dependent on their own individual cellular fitness. But either they're a different life form or they're not. If they're not, then they should act as our cells do. For the most part, our cells are, you know, liver cells are not necessarily in competition. They're working together in a tissue environment and they're also working together with the rest of the body. So, But I would disagree like- with that. I, I think that our cells are in competition. In fact, we, we have very good evidence that they are. So a cell doesn't have to be a cancer cell to be competing with its neighbors. In fact, I would argue that the fact that our cells are competing with each other is one of the ways that we, we keep our youthfulness and that we keep our, you know, our tissue integrity for half of a century before we all start to go to hell. You know, you can imagine, and this has been shown, for example, in epithelial tissues that, that if there's a cell that's less functional, it, you know, like because it got some mutation that made it less functional, even if it just got some damage, like some DNA damage, the neighboring cells will either eat that cell or force it out of the tissue, you know, basically, you know, squeeze it out of the epithelium. And for an epithelial tissue, this means going out into the void, you know, either outside the body or into the gut or something like that. And it's a beautiful system of quality control. And it's, so it's only by having that competitiveness where only the good are maintained within a body that we're able to maintain such fits tissues for so long. Um, you know, of course, for humans, we do it quite effectively for half of a century, but you could look at other organisms that are even bigger, like whales and elephants that do it for even longer. Yeah, but that's competitiveness that you assume it stops only when something's not healthy. Why wouldn't the competitiveness continue? Certain cells want to proliferate and outgrow other ones, and they'll do it to the point where they kill the other cells if it's truly yeah. competitive. Yeah, although, you know, the beauty of the system is, is that it's, you know, it's, we've evolved stem cells whereby being normal is actually the favored type. And so at least when we're young and healthy, for what my lab's shown and what we've theorized, is that, you know, the, even a cell that gets mutation, a mutation that would deregulate growth, that would be thought of as pro-cancer, will still lead most often, unfortunately, it's not 100% perfect, but most often leads to the elimination of that cell. And often that elimination is because it gets outcompeted by its neighbors. So its neighbors will simply be better. So having an oncogenic mutation does not necessarily provide a cell an advantage. And so what we've shown is that it's only when that's, that tissue is damaged or that, you know, it's old. Now that same oncogenic mutation that before was let, made the cell less competitive now will make the cell even more competitive. So, okay. I mean, I can understand, again, getting rid of unhealthy cells, but uh, do you think the competition stops there? Healthy or unhealthy? Otherwise, we leave you alone and there's no competition. Well, no, I think, well, I mean, if all the cells have equal fitness, they are still competing, but they just have equal odds of persisting. So it's all relative fitness. And so if, you know, if all the cells are perfectly healthy, they're still competing with each other. It's just that the odds of any one clone contributing or not contributing to future, you know, clone, you know, future tissue growth are pretty much just, you know, it's just sort of what we call drift kinetics. So you will get some clones that, you know, go up a little bit and other clones that go down a little bit. And by clones, I mean, just, you know, if you were to somehow 
mutationally mark them with something that otherwise didn't do anything good or bad to the cells, which we can do. You get what's called drift kinetics. It's just random ups and downs in those clones. But then if you give it something that makes the, the clone act, you know, basically be more fit, more likely to compete, you can see that clone expand within the tissue. And what we've shown is that that's more likely to happen under damaging, inflammatory, or aged context, not under young, healthy context. Do you know of anyone that, uh, that has looked at a tumor and its heterogeneity and try to map it spatially and then backtrack it to see how it started? Is it possible oh. to do something like that? Yeah, no, they, they, for example, Charlie Swanton and uh, Marco Gerlinger at the Sanger Institute. Yes, the Sanger Institute in England. They did beautiful studies where they did genomics on different parts of, uh, for example, they did on renal cell carcinoma. You know, what they found is that at the different spots of the same car- of the same cancer, there would be common events. And those are the ones I referred to as truncal, but, you know, sort of the common mutations shared by all parts of the cancer. But there were lots of mutations that were not shared and they were only in certain parts. Or if you went to the metastases, you would only find them in the metastatic lesions. And what was kind of depressing is that many of the events that we actually have drugs against were actually not present throughout the whole cancer. They were only present in parts of it or, in, you know, one little piece of the cancer, or one metastases and not in others. So if you were to treat the patient with that drug, at best, you would eliminate a little part of the cancer. But yes, they were able to trace it back and they could find the initiating events using basically genetic tracing and, and determine, okay, it happened in a cell that had these initial mutations and it was probably the first driver mutation was in, and it tended to be in this, this gene called VHL1. So they believe they were able to backtrack a tumor to its first starting cell or cells? Yeah, essentially they could identify what was the, the genetics of that first cell. And they, this has now been done for many cancers. And what's interesting is sometimes, you know, you can get a cancer in a 60, 70 year old and they can trace back that initial event to something that probably happened when the person was a teenager or even younger. How could that be the same cell survives or yeah, the slowly cell just, mutates? I mean, I actually think it's because you, you get a lot of events that happen early in life because that's when a lot of the cell divisions are happening. And but that those cells can participate persist within the tissue, but but they're kept in check. And they're kept in check by some of those mechanisms I was talking about, where basically a normal healthy tissue favors the normal type. And But they don't get eliminated. At least they don't get eliminated all the time. I think still in probably many cases they do. But when we see a cancer, those are the, the few that didn't get eliminated. And, and, and then when the person's old, or if the person was a smoker or something like that, now there's a new tissue environment that favors that clone that's kind of been laying and waiting for, you know, decades. And it suddenly, you know, will start to expand. And then it's more likely to get those init- uh, secondary mutations that can help it become more malignant. But I think that the data, you know, I was skeptical at first, but I think the data are becoming pretty clear because the the way they do these sort of mutational phenotyping, I think that the you know, they even will put, okay, this happened anywhere between the time the person was five and 22. So, you know, they're, they're being quite honest that they can date backwards in a person, but it's not like they're saying this person was 16 and a half years old when they got the first mutation. It's a, it's a range, but I'm pretty convinced the data are definitely suggesting that those, some of these events have been around for decades and yet we're, we're not, causing problems. You know, I think we have to recognize that natural selection is going to have sculpted our bodies to limit cancer, but 
not prevent it. I mean, there's really minimal selection against cancer at older ages where, where we were unlikely to be contributing our genes to subsequent generations. And so if that's the case, it, it doesn't mean that natural selection is going to limit all cancer causing mutations in the young because it, you know, it, it's basically the goal of natural selection is to keep us fit enough to, to reproduce. And so if we have cancer initiated clones in our body, but they're not actually reducing our ability to reproduce, the natural selection is going to have minimal sort of, uh, you know, pressure to prevent those from, from being around. And when I'm talking natural selection now, I'm talking over, you know, thousands of years and many human generations. Of course, I'm also talking about all animals, everything, you know, about humans, we're, we're not special. This, these same processes happen in all of our, you know, animal brethren. Okay. I don't know. What are some technologies that are coming that you think are going to be breakthroughs in terms of treating cancer? Yeah, no, that's interesting. I, I mean, I actually think some of the most exciting stuff isn't necessarily going to be in treating cancer, but in preventing it. I think some of the, you know, the new genomic methods for early detection of cancer from, from blood, typically these are going to be, you know, uh, cell-free circulating DNA, that there's new methods that are showing that they can distinguish whether or not someone has cancer with very good accuracy. And they can even indicate which tissue that person probably has cancer in. And if that's the case, we may be able to do, you know, when you go in for your annual checkup, maybe after you're 40, every year you get, you know, a blood test. And if you get a, you know, clean bill of health, they, they pat you on the back and send you on your way. But if they say, oh, looks like you have a early liver cancer, then they can do the follow-up to try to find it. Because, you know, one of the best ways to keep a cancer treatable is to catch it early. You know, you can often, then it's just the surgeon's job and they can remove it and you're done. So I think those are really exciting in terms of coming down the block. Of course, you know, we've all heard about immune therapy. I think immune therapy is going to continue to develop. Right now, ballpark, we are treating less than a third of patients effectively with immune therapy. I think we're going to learn how to up that number substantially. Part of it by hitting other pathways and part of it just figuring out how to turn uh, a cold cancer, which, you know, isn't susceptible to immune attack into a hot cancer, which is. And I think there's information coming out on that that's going to be leveraged in the future. Those are two of the big areas. But I think I think a lot more attention is going to be put on prevention and early detection, because I think that as often we haven't invested enough in that. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, well, very good. James, what's the best way for people to learn more about your research? Where can they go? Well, they could, you know, the good thing about a name like DeGregori is it's easy to Google. I'm about it. So if they Google James DeGregori, they can find not only my website, but they can find my papers. Um, I wrote a book on adaptive oncogenesis that's available. Uh, It's probably a good tour of our ideas and evolutionary thinking in cancer. So I'd say that's probably some of the best things they could do. Okay. Well, very good. Well, James, thank you for coming back. And I appreciate you coming each time you, you have. So thank you. Yeah, it was a pleasure talking to you, Richard. You, you actually ask really insightful questions. It's always fun talking to you. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.